0: Thank you for downloading the sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's now stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn this morning to First Peter chapter three, verses one through seven. First Peter three, chapters one through Verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would bless us as we come again to your word and and feed on its inerrant and infallible goodness. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we would not be those who look into your word and and then turn away and forget what it said, but that we would be those who hear it and do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So notice, first of all, notice that the passage begins with the words in the same way. passage begins with the words in the same way. That means that what precedes the passage that I preached on last Sunday forms the foundation for the exhortation of our passage this morning. In other words, the Holy Spirit's commands to servants applies to whomever is addressed in the upcoming verses. And who is addressed in verse 1? Those that, those that are addressed in verse 1 are wives. Wives. That means that what was taught in the previous section, things like submissiveness to one's authorities, submission to both the good and the gentle and the unreasonable authorities... For the sake of one's conscience, it means bearing up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Suffering for doing what is right. Those things apply now to how wives relate to their husbands. So the fundamental premise is that a wife should submit to the authority of her husband. Whether he's kind and gentle or whether he's unreasonable. Now you may not like me saying that. But it is not me saying that. It is the word of God that's saying that. It is scripture. We can't just jettison our doctrine when we come across passages we don't like. right? That is, in fact, what the world and liberal Christians do and expect us to do as well. I think they think of these passages as what they would call problem texts. Right? They're problem texts because they grate against our modern sensibilities, our modern way of, of looking at things, our cultural expectations. Right, It, it grates against our modern decadence. There was, there was some part of us that was willing to accept what I said about bosses and parents and our submission to them, but the idea of applying these same concepts within marriage is scandalous today. It's scandalous. Though some people look back to the 1950s, right, and and play like they are nostalgic for husbands who worked outside the home and, and wives who were, served the house, there's very little desire to have an order to our homes today. Today, the thought of hierarchy is reprehensible in any context, whether that be the workplace, whether it's the home, whether it's um, even and especially in the church. But it's particularly reprehensible in marriage. The redefinition of marriage, or rather the destruction of marriage, is a popular project in American society today. Justice Kennedy, in the the opinion that he wrote uh, for the majority in Obergefell v. Hodges, gets misty eyed as he describes the necessity of marriage without the old trappings of even a man and a woman he writes in forming a marital union two people become two people become something greater than once they were as some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death I would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. That's what he wrote. So not only is our our text that we come to this morning offensive because it necessitates hierarchy in marriage, our text is offensive merely because it assumes a man and a woman in marriage. I mean, how far have we fallen, right? This is a fight for which our children are going to suffer immensely. If they don't fall away, if our children don't fall away from the faith and the pressure of a hostile culture, their upholding of Scripture's teaching on sexuality and marriage and hierarchy within that marriage will lead to their persecution. They will lose jobs. They will lose scholarships. They will lose freedom. And they will become like the refugees of of early America who fled their homelands in order that they could know religious freedom, right? But they they will also, in that suffering, know, our children will know the sweetness of suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, are we willing to work through this passage? Are we willing to obey it? Are we willing to to set it aside, you know, Set aside the the immense cultural pressure both outside the church and more painfully within the church. Are you wives willing to humbly approach and accept what god's word says for you right if you if you won't or you don't, not only will you be despising God's word, you will likely you know you, you'll become like a man who comes under fire in warfare and abandons his position, abandons his brothers. Right? You will be a deserter from the word of God who chooses simply to live for his own skin. So the scripture says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, the command here is for a wife to submit or be submissive to her husband. Why? Why? Well, this is the word of God and scripture commands it. That's always the first answer to any why question. It's in scripture. Um, but this again, even the fact that it appears in scripture has no authority with, with many of us, right? So again, it's, it's outlandish. There. Um, but even, even beyond that, think of this. There is also something innate to manhood that requires submission is it that men are physically stronger therefore they should be given the right to rule is it that men are innately more intelligent than women therefore they should be the ones who are given the authority is it that men have the right balance of hormones coursing through their veins so they have a a chemically regulated way of making decisions well, I don't want to discount the fact that God did build structurally structural differences into man and woman. Right? It's observed in our biology. It, it, it does impact our giftedness at various tasks. Today, the fact that women have breasts is ignored in the whole question of who who can better care for infants. Right? We don't ever want to detach God's biological design of men and women from their work, calling, and giftedness. In fact, skipping forward a bit, we see the apostle says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. There is something in the makeup of women by God's design that contrasts with men. The former is weak, the latter is strong, relatively. But returning to the question, is it ultimately biology? Is it grip strength? Is it presence of testosterone? Is it the size of your brain? Is it muscle mass, right, that justifies a woman's submission to her husband? No, it is not. It is not. What scripture says, though, is this, which may be less of a satisfying answer than, than what I just dismissed, if you're thinking with a worldly mind. Elsewhere in scripture, First Timothy 2, 11 to 14, we read this. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. For... It was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So so the answer scripture gives for the source of the authority of a husband over his wife Or a man over a woman in other situations is first that God made Adam first. God made Adam first. With the order of creation comes authority of man over woman. Particularly, we understand this because when the man was found to be alone, the woman was made for the man. Right? And that, brothers and sisters, is the Holy Spirit's explanation in 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And then jumping down a few verses, man does not originate from woman, but woman from the man. For indeed, man was not created for this woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Okay, there's no more offensive scripture in in all of the Bible than that one. Man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So God's creation order, Adam first, then Eve, is the very core, it's the very fiber, it's the, it's the rebar they set down in the cement that structures a woman's submission to her husband. And the second reason, okay, we can accept that. We see that Adam first, then Eve, and Eve was made for Adam second when Adam was found to be alone. All of that, we can sort of wrap our heads around. And the second reason that the Apostle Paul states in 1 Timothy 2 is this. Eve, being deceived, fell into transgression, but not Adam. So the Holy Spirit explains why women are not to teach or exercise authority over man, which includes the marriage situation, of course. And the second reason is the manner of her first sin. The manner of Eve's first sin. She was deceived. Okay? Does that mean... Does that mean that Scripture is saying women are more easily deceived than men and so men should be the ones who lead? Not exactly. What I do think it is teaching is that women are more susceptible to temptation. And perhaps that is something of the weakness Peter speaks about later, right, when he says that treats your wife as a weaker vessel. And And so the woman being the weaker vessel, it's to her advantage to have strength over her. It's a good thing. Now let me quote one of my favorite books on this at some length. It's by Werner Neuer. And it's his book called Man and Woman in Christian Perspective. And he, he explains this, this um, section of 1 Timothy 2 about Eve being deceived and not Adam in a way I think is very helpful. He says this. It's interesting that in 1 Timothy 2, Paul cites not just the order of creation, that man was created first and given leadership as the basis, but also the greater susceptibility of women to temptation as hinted at in the story of the fall. Remember in the story of the fall, what is Eve doing before she eats? She is gazing longingly at that gorgeous tree and the gorgeous fruit and what that fruit could do. And Adam, we don't know what he's doing. He's bumbling around close to her. But she is fixated on that tree. That tree that God said no, right? So he's saying, remember that it's hinted at in the story of the fall, when the um, which makes her less suited to the office of teacher than a man. But by mentioning Eve's guilt in the fall, Paul does not in any way intend to ascribe to her the main blame, right? We have to work through that now in Romans five twelve. Paul expressly emphasizes that despite Eve's previous sin, the misery of sin was first brought on mankind by Adam. It was his sin that was the great disaster of mankind, right? In Adam we fell, right? He was the one who had responsibility. He was made first, right? And that's why we fell. So in 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul does not want to charge Eve with the chief responsibility for the fall, only to draw attention to her share of guilt, in which a peculiar danger for women is noticeable, namely their greater susceptibility to temptation. The reference to this particular liability of women show that in excluding them from the teaching and leadership offices, the apostle is not disadvantaging them, but is trying to safeguard their femininity with its special gifts and weaknesses. Allowing women to teach or lead the congregation would not only offend against God's creation order, but at the same time open them to risks to which they are not equal. In the story of the fall, Paul saw what dangerous consequences are entailed when the, women, when the woman forsakes her God-intended position as man's helpmate and subordinate. Since God's intention that woman should be subordinate is not an oppressive sentence, but a life saving and protective measure in her own best interests, it must harm her if she rejects this provision. For Paul, to allow a woman to teach or lead is blatantly opposed to her female nature. Now, all of that is hard to pick up, I understand, but it's very helpful. Okay, we are so happy to teach from Scripture that Adam is our federal head and that the first man represents all mankind, both male and female. But Eve, the first woman, represents all women. And Scripture teaches us that there is a weakness there that is blessed by the corresponding or relative strength of the man. So the order of creation and the presence of a susceptibility to temptation are reasons Scripture gives for why husbands should exercise authority over their wives, why they should lead in marriage and women should submit. You may not like that, but that is what Scripture teaches. And Scripture is without error. It is authoritative and it is breathed out of the very mouth of God. A husband has authority over his wife, and a wife must be submissive to her husband because Adam was created first, and then Eve, her mother, was deceived and fell into transgression. A wife is called to submit because of the creation order and because she is weaker than her husband in the face of temptation. You buy it? You really think women are weaker in the face of temptation than men? No one really believes that, do we? We men are the weak ones today, right? Women are the ones unlike, well, men are the ones who are constantly caving to the temptation of pornography right for the most part men are the ones who thump their tr- chests and can't empathize with anybody right and women are generally viewed today as strength they become the CEOs and the glass ceiling has been broken over and over they do not have the violent tendencies of men they are less rash in their decisions and more thoughtful But is all of that true? I mean, shall we talk about the rivalries that exist between women? The rivalries that exist between women are more intense than any rivalry I've seen between any two men. Shall we talk about the jealousies that crop up in a woman every time she observes a woman with a better figure run by her on the road? It's very hard for you to be objective like your husband obnoxiously is when your mind is flooded with worry, emotions, and yes, I'm going to say it, monthly hormones. More often than not, those addicted to painkillers and other dope, in my experience, have been middle-aged women. Right? We just give them the benefit of the doubt and accept their diagnoses more than we accept those of men. But, I mean, we could go through and we could go back and forth. Yeah, men this, and yeah, what about women this? And, and we could go back and forth. But do I have to prove this empirically for you? Or will Scripture's testimony be enough for you to humble yourselves, ladies, admit your husband's and other men's strengths and your own weaknesses? Why, why can't we do this today? Because we've bought the lie of radical egalitarianism, interchangeability, right? We think men and women are not just radically similar. We even think today that they're interchangeable. A man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. A man can even menstruate, right? And we think it is damaging and offensive and oppressive to think that husbands should be the heads of their wives because they are gasped. The weaker vessel because they are women. You can go that way if you'd like. It will only be to your destruction. You should stick to scripture. So back in 1 Peter 3, just like servants were told to submit both to gentle and unreasonable masters, so wives are told to submit to both the believing and unbelieving husband. The apostle writes, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So we take this description of the husband that is disobedient to the word as a statement about the husband being an unbeliever, not just a sinner. Right? There's no need to say, submit to your husband, even if a sinner. That's, that's given. Right? So what we're talking about is a situation where a woman is married to an unbeliever. Even and especially, she is to submit to her husband. Why? And notice I said, even and especially, she's to submit to her husband. Why? Because her behavior is powerful. Her behavior is powerful. Without even saying a word, the way she treats her husband could win him to Christ. It's true, it truly is an awful thing, right, to be married to somebody who does not hold in common with you what is most important to you. I've witnessed many marriages where this is the case. One spouse attends church and, and is a member of the church, and we get to know him or her, and then there is this mystery spouse for which they are always asking for prayer it's an incredible burden and knowing that that person does not have a fear of the lord it is often a terrible and impressive oppressive situation for a believer to be in what longing they must have for the conversion of their spouse right and what scripture commends at that point is not a pulling down of everything I just taught about the sexes and their order. Rather, what Scripture does is commend it as the very thing that may lead to the conversion of your spouse. As a man observes a certain combination of godly characteristics in his wife, his heart will be swayed. That combination of godliness is chastity or holiness and respect she's not going after other men or other relationships she's still committed to him and she respects him remember that is particularly the work of wives while husbands are called by scripture to affectionately love their wives showing show them that they're the apple of their eye a wife is particularly called to show her love to her husband by respecting him in Ephesians 5 we read, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What you may not know is that the verb in Ephesians 5 that is translated respect and the adjective here in 1 Peter 3 that is translated respectful are derived from the, the Greek fabomai, which means to fear, which means to reverence. Right, the Greek word from which we get our English, phobia. Right, so God's word says there is power in a wife's holy, respectful, and reverent behavior. In other words, there is power in remembering, respecting her husband's authority and position. Well, talk about throwing vinegar in the, in the, eye, in the woman's eyes. Right? God says that you have to be committed to and fear your unbelieving husband you don't get to uh, you don't get to uh, let your affections go after another man who is more sensitive and more spiritual than your husband. You don't get to nag him and put him in his place. you don't get to belittle him before before his face and before others. The temptation for a woman in just that kind of situation would be to do all of that right? But the kind of woman who does that shows that husband a lot about her religion, a lot about her faith, a lot about her fear of God, a lot about, and, and all of it, that it's just paper thin. He observes it and wants nothing to do with that kind of hypocrisy. On the other hand, knowing himself and his own hardness when he observes a woman living her faith and continuing to show him honor, even when he rejects what is most precious to her, well, that's going to strike him right in the face. That's going to be a powerful impetus. A man knows he's loved when he's respected, and love covers a multitude of sins. Love is powerful. Notice the corrective now in verse 3. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. but Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So often when we want to win somebody's affections, we'll resort to external things, won't we? We'll, we'll lift weights. We'll lose weight. We'll get a haircut. We'll put on makeup. We'll adorn ourselves with signs of wealth. We'll buy new clothes. But all of that, though not forbidden, is not what godly femininity consists of. Some men are satisfied with that kind of woman that knows more about looking good than being good, right? Godly femininity does not primarily consist in externals, just as godly masculinity does not primarily consist in externals. So so what is it? A woman should be adorned with a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle and quiet spirit, which arises out of the hidden person of the heart. A gentle and quiet spirit. Is that what femininity looks like today? Is that how we would summarize our culture's teaching on femininity? All that our modern feminists have accomplished is deluding women into thinking that they should be a caricature of a man. right? What, what is the opposite of gentle and quiet? It sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Um, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. There's actually a pretty good punchline to that joke, if you get my drift. Seriously, what is the opposite of of gentle and quiet? It's brash and loud. Brash and loud. That's the kind of woman that our culture today celebrates, doesn't it? Think of our time at the abortion clinic a few months ago. Brash and loud women draped with the rainbow flag, shouting obscenities, getting in our faces, advocating for the violent murder of children. That's the kind of femininity one is left with when one dislodges one's sex from the Word of God. But that's, that's an extreme case. What about the, the, the women of the denomination we just left? Let me paint with a broad, a broad um, stroke. The powerful women in the PCA are constantly talking about what they need to do in order to give the women of the church a voice, right? They need to be heard. They need to speak because there is only power in being heard and in speaking. No. No. Femininity's power, the apostle writes, is precisely in its gentleness and its quietness. For some reason, we've lost the ability to feel even any shame about this. At least to a certain extent, but it's, it's, it's quickly dying. There, there is still an aversion to an effeminate man. Man who has betrayed the authority of his own sex. We still feel it awkward when a man is soft and he styles himself to be soft, right? On the other hand, we seem to have come to terms with brash and loud women. It's much more acceptable than a soft man. We don't see it as a betrayal of her calling to obey the sex God made her. After all, you know, well behaved women seldom make history. But note what the apostle writes about women with a gentle and quiet spirit. That, he writes, is precious in the sight of God. Precious in the sight of God. Again, let's dig a little deeper into what this means, a gentle and quiet spirit. The temptation of many women and many men, for that matter, is to give themselves to perfecting their bodies but not doing any work on their spirit, on their character, on their behavior, on their heart. And so, like the Pharisees, we like to look good on the outside, even if the the cup is filled with rottenness. And Scripture turns this upside down. We cannot neglect our spirit, our character, our hearts, out of which comes our behavior. We must have inner beauty that leads to behavior that is precious in the sight of God. And for a woman, what is beautiful is when she is willing to be in the background, When she's willing to defer to others. When she's willing to be sedate. Right? When she's willing to be quiet and thoughtful. When she is tender and motherly with those who hurt. Right? When she has a thought, she does not need to speak it. Matthew Henry says this, the finest ornament of a Christian woman is a meek and quiet spirit, a tractable, easy temper of mind, void of passion, pride, and immoderate anger, discovering itself in a quiet, obliging behavior towards their husbands and families. Now, what does that word tractable mean? Right? Tractable. I've been thinking about that word. When Matthew Henry writes, a tractable, easy temper of mind. Um, what he means is that she has a manageable spirit. To be intractable means to be unmanageable, right? Intractable, we understand, but to be tractable is to, be, is to have a manageable spirit. She's able to take correction. She's able to be moved in a different direction. She is, in fact, happy to move in a different direction, particularly at the direction of her husband, The opposite of tractable is intractable, and that is a word that applies to many women today. They have been taught that to be intractable is the right of every modern woman. Stand your ground. Do not be well-behaved. To be well-behaved and to be a well-behaved woman is to be under the thumb of the patriarchy. But don't believe the lies of Satan. Such a spirit is precious in the sight of God. To be gentle and quiet is precious in the sight of God. Does that matter to you women? Does that matter? Does it honestly matter? That a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God? Do you have that kind of relationship with your creator? That you care about what he thinks? Do you care about what your Father in Heaven thinks? Do you have the kind of relationship with God where you want to do what pleases Him? Right? If so, here's a way. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. Be tractable. Be easily managed. Right? Submit in such a way that allows your husband to lead even if he is unreasonable. The difficulty with doing this, because God thinks it is precious, is that it seems to you that there are very few immediate benefits to it. Such is the Christian life, isn't it? There are very few immediate benefits to any obedience to God, right? Our reward comes later. Obedience is difficult because we don't see immediate fruit, In the case of a gentle and quiet spirit for a woman, some will receive the reward of winning their husband to the faith. Others will not receive that reward, but they will receive the reward that the Son of God says he has with him and will give to each man when he comes to judge the living and the dead. That reward. When that day comes and it is not just... A thought we we have to remind ourselves each day. But when that day comes and it's a present reality, just like this day is today, we will regret that we did not live for the reward as we should have. Right? We'll lament how short sighted we were even when we were told to store our treasures in heaven by God's word. So women, women, store your treasures in heaven. Seek a better reward by showing forth what God tells you is precious to him. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit.